what he's saying to him. Why are you in this situation? That's his challenge. And then he gives him a command. He says, you, and, and this is in the imperative. That is, you must do this. He said, command these stones to become bread. Satan gives the command. And of course, that's where he would assert himself in your life. Is it not? Always, he would be the one who works into the situation where you are following his commands. If that comes through your sinful flesh, that is, you have a desire to sin and you do that, understand that it is the enemy of your soul. Not that he stuck that in your mind or heart, it comes out of you. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday, weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, Matthew 4. And if you'll stand, I'll be reading again verses 1 through 11, the temptation of the king. And we'll seek to finish out the first temptation this morning. And yet it's good to see all of this in context as we understand what Jesus went through as he begins his ministry, really proving his worthiness, overcoming the great assault of Satan upon him through these temptations. So Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up so that you shall, you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Please be seated. Now this weekend, we had our annual father-son camp out. It was off, then on, then off, then a different place and all kinds of different things. We had a a little smaller group than normal, but it was a joyful time just to be together and to encourage one another and also to give the moms a break. I didn't really think about this, but what a great time to have a father-son camp out on Mother's Day or Mother's Day weekend. Why? Because then you get all the men out of the house and let mom do what she wants to do for a Saturday at least. Now, men, just a a word to you, uh, make sure that you that your mom that the moms don't have to clean up all the mess you made for the camp out. I just I just want to make that clear because that would undo all the work that we've sought to do. But at the camp out, 
uh, we're, we got up there on Thursday, and it was uh, it looked like it was it was supposed to rain. It didn't rain that night, but then on Friday it just kind of cut loose, and it was raining most of the morning. And it's one of those times where you look and you go, well, "I got you know, we got 35 guys coming up, and we're so we have really everything's outdoor. We we, we don't have a, a building rented or anything." And so the temptation quickly comes on the basis of the circumstance to be frustrated and discouraged. Why does it have to rain every time that Grace Community Church goes camping? just seems like that's the case. And, and, and why, if God is sovereign over the weather, is he bringing this? And yet that answered my question, right? Why, if God is sovereign over the... I really need to be done right there. But the point is that the, the sovereignty of God and bringing the circumstance of rain, a seemingly simple thing, and in many ways a joyful and good thing to have rain, gave me an opportunity either to praise him and thank him or to what? Sin. And so God in his sovereignty, bringing the circumstance, was not trying to draw sin out of my heart. He was trying to draw what? Praise and honor to him and thankfulness and, and, and a, a reliance upon his strength to work through whatever difficulties might arise as a result of that. And yet what was Satan, the enemy of my soul, seeking to do? And then what was my sinful flesh seeking to do? To use it as an opportunity to steal from the glory of God through complaining, through discouragement, or through anxiety. A very simple thing, right? A little bit of rain on a camp out. And yet, uh, a spiritual battle raging in my own soul. Which one will it be, Chris? What will you choose? Now, obviously, we understand that things go a lot deeper and a lot more difficult than that when you have a difficult marriage, when a loved one dies, when perhaps someone you know is raped or harmed. And yet, even in those circumstances, our understanding of God's sovereignty then drives us to either sin or it drives, and that is really to, to disregard that sovereignty, really grow angry against God, or it draws us to praise and to worship. And that's really the issue going on in the temptations of Christ, that Satan comes really challenging the sovereignty of God, if he really is sovereign, and really challenging his goodness as well, and his wisdom. All of those things are challenged by Satan continually, that he truly is in control of everything, that he is wise in his control of it, and that he is good and loving as he dispenses it towards us. That's the nature of temptation. That's what's going on in our text. That's what goes on in your heart continually. And so I had a chance either to question his goodness, question his wisdom, question his love, or to instead find joy and peace in his provision in the midst of that circumstance, his provision of the circumstance and his provision in the circumstance. I either grow stronger or I fail and grow weak, and God is not honored. Well, that is, again, that's going on in our lives all the time. And when confronted with difficulties or temptations, we are quick to turn to our own wisdom, to the advice of others, to our own power. It was really interesting. I had this thought because I've been teaching, obviously, on this text. As I'm wrestling with the weather, I had this thought, if I had the ability to change the weather, which I don't, and it's probably a really, really good thing that I don't, that in that temptation, would it not have been very similar to Christ to just change the weather? Why not just change it and turn stones into bread? Why not turn rain into dry? rain into sunshine. Well, if I had my way, those are the kinds of things that I would do continually, and I would end up in tremendous trouble, walking away from the will of God regularly, not coming underneath His sovereignty. And, and really, when it comes to Christ, remember, as He is fully God, and yet He's also fully man. He is living as fully man. He has willfully chosen to set aside that independent use of His attributes. We sometimes call that the kenosis, where He's coming underneath the will of God. He could have changed the weather, but because he had not been directed by his father to do so, he didn't, or he could have changed the stones into bread. And so as he gives that up, as he comes completely and fully underneath his father, he puts himself in the same position as you or I. And yet 
interestingly enough, he puts himself in, he is in a unique position because though you and I do not have the strength and power to do things, to literally change the universe and change the world, Jesus did. And so really his temptation comes in a stronger way than ours would. You and I can't turn stones into bread. We can go steal it maybe, or we could do something else that would dishonor God, but we just can't by by the force of our will and our power do that kind of thing. We can't just change the weather. But imagine if we could and the kinds of temptations that we would face to constantly take things into our own hands to accomplish what we felt was best. Well, that's the, the essential nature of the temptation going on. Now, if instead of taking our own will and our own desires and our own power and our own strength and our own provision, if we would seek out the truth of God's Word, if we would apply it in every situation, then we would defeat temptation, for the Word of God will never fail to provide what is necessary to overcome sin. You don't need omniscience. You don't need to be all-powerful. You don't need divine power to change things, because the Word of God gives you all the principles necessary to live underneath the one who can. And that's what Jesus is demonstrating for us. He was living underneath the will of the one who changes things, the one who is sovereignly in control and therefore did not need to exercise his own ability to do those things. Well, it's the same for us, although we think it's different. If I could just assert my own abilities, if I just had the power to change all of this, then things would be okay. And so in our little way, we try it. In our little small ways, we, well, I'll change this. I'll, I'll do this differently. Instead of coming underneath the truth of the Word of God, I ask you in my little temptation, as it were, to be frustrated and discouraged over the weather, was Scripture sufficient for me? It was. As I understand the sovereignty of God, as I understand to take joy in the midst of that situation, as I understand that God is working for my good and the good of the men who are coming up, even those who are going to get rained on, that God is still good in those things and they would be teaching them things. Scripture was fully sufficient and the power of God was fully sufficient for me to do righteousness and be holy in that situation. And it's the same in every situation you will ever face all of your life. Scripture is sufficient in the power of the Spirit of God. That's our lesson for this morning. Let's flesh it out a little bit more. What we will see, the same thing that we were seeing last week, we're midway through temptation one, is that in order to resist the continual temptation to live according to our own will, to make the changes that we would have, to, to drive life in the direction that we would take it, In order to resist that continual temptation, we must embrace the truth that everything we truly need in life is provided for us through the living and abiding Word of God. It's radical when we really think about that truth. Everything we truly need in life is provided for us through the living and abiding Word of God. Now, in this first temptation, we've already seen Satan's challenge to the king. Drop your eyes down to the text. Verse 2, after he'd fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. He had physical weakness, as it were. That's what hunger is. We must be sustained by something outside of ourselves. Jesus had a body that needed that. He took it on. And the tempter came to him and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. This is his challenge. If you're the Son of God... Why are you out here in the wilderness? God just said that you were his beloved son. You've entered into your ministry. Why are you stuck out here? Why are you hungry? I think in a bigger picture, why have you taken on flesh? Why is this necessary? You are the son of God. You're equal with God. You are God, essentially. That's what he's saying to him. Why are you in this situation? That's his challenge. And then he gives him a command. He says, you, and and this is in the imperative. 
That is, you must do this. He said, command these stones to become bread. Satan gives the command. And of course, that's where he would assert himself in your life. Is it not? Always, he would be the one who works into the situation where you are following his commands. If that comes through your sinful flesh, that is, you have a desire to sin and you do that, understand that it is the enemy of your soul. Not that he stuck that in your mind or heart, it comes out of you, but that's essentially his command. That's what he would have done. Any sin, that's what he would have said, you ought to do this. God would never command you to sin. And so in this case, just very openly and very blatantly, command the stones to become bread. Satan gives his own command. And then we talked about the implications that seem to be built into this command, into this temptation that it is a temptation for Jesus to reclaim his divine prerogative. You are the son of God. You don't deserve to be here. Reassert yourself, take back your deity as it were, and then pursue what you, what, what your needs. Solve your own problems. Also to doubt the provision and love of God the Father. You've come underneath him and look what he's done. He's taking you out in the wilderness. You're hungry. And again, looking forward to all the things that you're going to have to face and all the way to the cross where you're going to have to go and suffer the very wrath of God. How do you deserve this? Is the Father truly loving? Does he truly provide? And you face this temptation every day. Is he truly loving? Does he really provide? And this is what Jesus is facing. Then it's the temptation or the other implication. Depart from utter dependence upon the will of God then. That really is the, the fundamental nature of this. You don't need to depend on God. Take this into your own hands. He hasn't given you what is sufficient. You have what's sufficient, so you take it and you accomplish this. And the last implication really is the bigger picture seems that Satan is working very hard that the second Adam, Christ, or the last Adam, really would fail as the first Adam did. And fascinating that it even comes around food once again. The physical hunger, the, the delight even of food. It's not food delightful. Wasn't that true for even the, the garden when she saw that the fruit, it was delightful to the eyes. It was good for food. And then also what it would bring, it was knowledgeable to make her wise. Well, in this case, it would provide for the Son of God, his physical need, it was in that sense delightful to him and would enable him to assert his own will, accomplishing what then seemed to be best in his own eyes. Well, now let's look at his response. So how does the Son of God, he truly is this, fully God and fully man, fully divine and fully human, what resources will he use? We should be on the edges of our seats. What will he say? He's been given this temptation. He's hungry. He's physically weak. He's been out in the wilderness. He's starting his ministry. We know that this is a real deep, strong temptation or Satan would not have brought it. We know that he was tempted in all things as we yet without sin. So this affects him deeply. A true temptation of a true man. And so how will he respond? Will he come up with something amazing? Will he do something miraculous? Will he, will he come up with some new word for us in this situation so that we might watch and just be amazed? How does he do that? Well, you already know the answer, but I don't think we fully understand the implications of it. So let us see the first words out of Jesus' mouth. Then he answered and said, it is written. Stunning. Absolutely stunning. He doesn't say, I say. Jesus many times said, I say to you. Later, as we look into his ministry, he will continually say things like, you've heard that it was said, I say to you. He will continually, as it were, bring scripture himself in his own teaching, the things that he has. Certainly, Jesus is not afraid to do that. He is, is the son of God, and he can and does bring divine teaching. He will bring that. But in this case, what does he say? It is written. That's code words for scripture says, what scripture is he referring to? The Old Testament. 
And this word is used about 67 times, or this, it's one word in the Greek. It is written, it's, a, it's, it's one verb. It's used in, we call it the perfect tense, a very interesting tense. That is something that has been accomplished but has ongoing impact. It is written. Really, it has been written and continues to have impact now. We can look at it now. So the whole, and everywhere this is used in Scripture, 99% of the time, it is a reference back to the Old Testament, the inspired Word of God written in the Old Testament. And so he exclusively, that would be number one on your outline, the king's response is an exclusive use of Scripture. Those are the only words that he says. It is written, he introduces it, so that Satan might know where this is coming from, although uh, as if Satan didn't know, as we will see in temptation number two, Lord willing, next week, Satan has a good grasp of Scripture or a knowledge of it, I would say. But he has an exclusive use of Scripture, which indicates to us several things. And I'd like to draw out the implications one by one. We're going to dwell on it for this first temptation. Obviously, we won't continue to do that for each of them because Jesus does the same thing, newsflash, for every one of the temptations. It is written, it is written, it is written. He does, on the third temptation, give a command and then Scripture. But that is his pattern all the way through where he uses Scripture. So what does this mean about Jesus' understanding of and use of the Bible. Is it radically different than we would use it? Is he somehow coming up with some new and unique thing? Even if he's using Scripture, maybe he's going to kind of transcend the bounds of of how we would understand it and change it or, or use it in a miraculous way. No, first, bottom line, what this indicates to us is that Jesus had memorized Scripture. Was it not? Well, he's the Son of God, of course. He wrote it. Understand, he is living as a man. He is living in the power of the Spirit of God as he asks us to do, and he is using the Scripture that he has memorized. Mark it down. This is how we are to respond to temptations. How much of Scripture do you know? Now, I understand we have it written, and we can turn to, we can turn to pages. It, I suppose Jesus could have, had he brought them with him, he could have brought the scroll of Deuteronomy, whoosh, put it out and, and found the spot, Deuteronomy 8.13, and, and read it, but he didn't. He said, it is written. He speaks it. He had it memorized. He knew what it was. He'd memorized it as a child. Probably he had the entire Pentateuch memorized. Perhaps he had the entire Old Testament memorized. I don't know. And yet it it seems to us, and I think the proper understanding is that he had to learn it. He had learned it as a child. He had learned, he'd grown in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. He had memorized scripture. He had it on his mind to bring it back when he needed it. Do you? How much do you know? He quotes exactly, by the way, he's quoting from the Septuagint, right? the Greek version of the Old Testament written about 200 years before the time of Christ, and he makes an exact quotation from that. How well do you know it? Could you do the same thing? This seems very basic. The Son of God had done what? Memorized Scripture. And again, I know most of you, perhaps all of you, have read this text over and over again. He's cheating. He's the Son of God. He wrote it. So, of course, he knows it. Now, I understand that he wrote it through the Spirit. But nowhere is it implied to us when in Jesus' life on earth that he was grasping to his divinity, that he was reaching back to his divinity in order for him to remember Scripture. Could he have done that? Sure. Does it seem to us through all, in all the pattern of what Jesus did in his life that he does do that? No. And just let me make the application to you. You aren't divine, and so you can never do that. And so whether Jesus did or not, what he's telling you to do and what we have in this is that you have to have it memorized. Now, I believe Jesus did as well. 
but you're going to have to because you aren't divine and you didn't write it and you're going to have to know it and you need to know it as, as essentially as possible, all of it. Do you have to memorize the whole Old Testament? It wouldn't be a bad idea. Skip the genealogies. But nonetheless, maybe Leviticus, but really, can we really skip it? No. Focus on the New Testament. Yes, we'll talk more about this. He had it memorized. He knew it so that he could use it. And so he brings it back to mind. You know the verses. Let me just immerse your mind in them. Joshua 1, 8 and 9. This book of the law. Jesus is quoting from the book of the law, Deuteronomy. That's the first five books. He would, would, would be what he's uh, speaking of there, Joshua is speaking of. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you will be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. You want to be successful? Jesus desperately needed to be successful. And that's what successful is, right? It doesn't mean you can have boats and cars and homes and money or even that your family will be everything that you want it to be or your job will be. No, it is that you will be able to obey God in any given circumstance and thus bring him glory and accomplish his work. That's spiritual success. Jesus needed to be successful. If he wasn't successful, the entire plan of salvation is done at this moment. You also need to be successful, and you can be. Do you want to make your way prosperous? Do you want to have a life that is overflowing with joy in the Lord, that is accomplishing his will, his purpose, even in the midst of pain and grief and difficulty, which many of you are sitting in this morning? Then memorize and meditate and use Scripture. But it starts, how can it be that the book of the law doesn't depart from your mouth day and night if you don't have it memorized? It's a little bit hard to walk around. You know, you're walking through the mall. Where's Matthew 5? And you're, tripping, you're tripping over things, you're bumping into people. There was a time in my life when I was so addicted to reading and particularly fantasy books, uh, science fiction kind of books, that I would, I would walk around through the mall reading. That's weird. It's weird. And I walked by my mentor one time. I was reading. And of course, I didn't even notice him because I was reading. And I got home. I was living at his house at the time. And he, I came in the door and he's like, um, I saw you in the mall today. I was like, oh, really? I didn't see you. He goes, yeah, I know. You were reading a book. What's the matter with you? That's what he said. You are addicted to this stuff. You had best get that away. If you got to walk, if you're so addicted to it, you got to walk through the mall and listen to it. Now, a lot of you guys don't read stuff as you walk through the mall. What do you do? Earphones. Boink. You're addicted to it. Get rid of it. I'm telling you, you don't have to have it that bad. Be done. I wasn't even preaching on that. I better move on. Um, <laughs> Instead, why don't you be addicted to Scripture? And no, I'm not advocating to walk through the mall holding your Bible. And in fact, I used to be pretty militant about this, and I would encourage people to memorize all the time. I still am encouraging you to memorize all the time, but so much so I had these little verse packets, and I would memorize them while driving. Texting and driving is bad. Memorizing and driving is probably better, but it's still kind of dangerous. And I had a good friend, Jonathan Anderson. He's a pastor down in Texas now, and he was driving and. I didn't know it at the time, but he got in a little accident, thankfully, a little fender bender. And, you know, his parents came and took care of it. It was, it was their car. He's still in high school. And he told me later, he said, well, you know, Chris, that, that exhortation to memorize scripture, it's really good. But the reason, at least, you know, the, the circumstantial reason that I crashed into that car in the turn lane is because I was looking down and memorizing my verses. Now, again, that's a pretty good excuse. I mean, if you're going to have one, but his parents didn't really take it that kindly. Like, who told you to do that? I did. 
But do I think scripture memorization is important? Do I think you ought to have it on your mind all the time? Do I think that's going to take effort and energy on your part to do it? And that there's about just about nothing better in the world that you could do with your time than memorize scripture? I do. Scripture does. The Bible itself says this. Jesus demonstrates it as he says to Satan, it is written and gives a perfect quote of the Old Testament. You need to memorize scripture. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. These words. Oh, by the way, I never finished Joshua 1, 8 and 9. The famous verse that we always know, the, the one we know even more, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That comes right after the verse that says, don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth. The reason the Lord is with you wherever you go is not only his presence to guide and direct you, but that presence which directs and guides you through the truth and principles of Scripture. The more of Scripture that you know and are actually applying, we'll talk about that in a minute, not just you know, Dr. Cranium who knows all this Scripture, you know, these guys that go on radio shows and, and quote all their Scripture, and they, they, they're, they have signs. If, if, there's ever, if, if anybody ever give, puts a sign up that says, Bill so-and-so knows the New Testament, come hear him speak, run far away. If he has to announce to you that he has the whole New Testament memorized as a means of drawing you, then he is not, well, that's a little strong. He's, he's, I don't think he's worthy of listening to. You don't, you don't need to announce how much scripture you know. I'm not saying that. We don't walk around saying, look how much I've memorized. In fact, that goes against what scripture would say, which would indicate to me a very serious problem in, in someone's heart if they were to do that, to announce how much they know, and that makes him impressive, and that's why you should come. No, he should do that. You should do that. But the issue is, are you living it? Are you applying it? Do you understand it? But you do need to memorize it. Now let's go to Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. These words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. That is, in your inner man. You have put them inside. And that means that there's implications here, not only, again, just of the words that you know, but that they drive your will, they control your affections, but that has to come through the intellect. You have to know them. Scripture is not magic, so that's why we're going to say memorization is only step one. Just having the words in there doesn't automatically change you. The Spirit of God then uses it as you understand it and as you apply it, as you consider it. But these words which I'm commanding you today, says Moses, shall be on your heart. They shall be inside of you, not just on the page. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. How can you do that if you don't have it memorized? Constantly pouring forth the principles of Scripture. You're disciplining your children and Scripture comes to mind. It's fine if you want to go get the Bible. We've got the chart on the wall. We do that. We've got the, you know, the, the teaching them diligently chart that tells, you know, here's the sin, here's the Bible verse. But pretty soon you do that enough and you got the Bible verse memorized. And so you can break it out if, you, if you're in Walmart and you don't have the chart. So start with the chart. That's wonderful. But memorize the scripture so that you know. And in every situation, you can bring it back. How can you teach these things to your children? When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Is there anywhere that they don't need to know that? Is there anywhere that Satan isn't assaulting them and you so that you might sin when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You know this is true. You rise up in the morning, your first thought is to sin if you're not careful. You go to bed at night, your last thought is sinful as you think over the day, and, and, the, and the person that you're upset at, which is probably your wife or your husband as you lie down, or maybe your children, or maybe that guy at work, whatever it might be, and you're, and you're ruminating on that, and you're sinning. 
rather than bringing scripture to bear. And when you lie down, when you rise up, when you walk by the way, everywhere you need to know the principles of scripture that you might not sin and therefore you might do what is right so you would make your way prosperous and have success. This is what Jesus is modeling. It goes on to say, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. There shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now, the, the, the Jews got that wrong in the sense that they, they would take them, they'd have these phylacteries, they would put them on their, on their heads and put them on their, on their hands. They'd walk around with the scripture on there, like somehow that would change them. And he says, what? It's to be on your heart. Yes, bind them as it were on the frontals of your forehead and on your gates. That is that everything you do is directed by Scripture. When you build your house, you build it according to what the Lord would have, not his specifications, that is, of dimension. But when you're building your house, when you are involved in the things of your work, wherever you are, that's all according to scriptural principles. That's the idea, and you have to know them. So Jesus had memorized Scripture. Jesus had meditated on Scripture. How do I know that? Because it instantly comes to mind, and he uses it properly. He didn't just have the words stuck there in his brain. It's not enough. You can know a lot of scripture. And if you haven't carefully meditated on it, and you haven't thought about it, you haven't understood it, and you haven't sought then, as we'll seek in, to in, look in a minute, to apply it, then it just sits there. It's like, it's like a rock that sits there without, without any usefulness. A, a body, even, it'd be like memorizing the, uh, you know, the equa- differential equations without any idea of what they actually mean. So I can, I, can, I can spell it back to you, the first integral and second integral and all these things, but I don't have any idea how it applies. Well, I've got it memorized, but I don't know what it means, and so it isn't helpful. Well, for some of you, Scripture's like that. you got all this Scripture in there. Now, I'm still saying get it in there, because when you get it in there, then you can understand it over time. We're memorizing for our quizzing for uh, really sixth graders up through, up through uh, 12th grade. We're memorizing the entire book of Philippians. And people will sometimes, sometimes come to me and say, come on, the entire book of Philippians? I mean, how can they possibly understand all of that? They can't. But if they get it memorized over time, they will if they meditate on it and if we teach on it and if they apply it. And it's in there. It's in there. So that the Spirit of God can use it as, they, as we teach on it and, and as they understand it and as they meditate on it. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online And we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. 
Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.